0: Thank you. everyone it's great to have you here together today at first christian church to everybody here in the west to those who are worshiping also in the east and uh we have people all over the place in, involved in worship today here here in the on the campus and then we have some folk folk that are watching and participating online we're glad you're with us and to our friends in lovington as well welcome to first christian church uh, if you're a guest i'm very glad you're with us and thanks for gracing us with your presence today my name is wayne I'm part of the pastoral team and I'm very glad you're with us. Would you take a Bible, please, wherever you are and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Maybe it's the Bible you've got with you today. Maybe it's one in the Pew Rack. They're moving some around the East Order term right now or online there's a tabby. Maybe it's your smartphone. It'll take us a few minutes to get there, but Genesis 37 is where we're headed. Um, oh, in a few minutes, okay? I'd like to start with um, some history, if I may. Um, 4,500 years ago, a long time ago from now, uh, any people group or nation in the Near East had to reckon with the ancient kingdom of Egypt. Egypt was a political force, a, a, an economic it was the economic center of the world. They were military might, and um, they, they were involved in a lot of things. Perhaps they're most known for in our time that their rulers, their pharaohs built had these massive buildings made called pyramids and historians and people in general were fascinated by the fact they built these huge buildings in days when they didn't have construction cranes how'd they get all those massive stones hundreds of feet up in the air we know that they have in terms of who did it Egypt was um run if you will the the driving force of Egypt was it was a, a land of slavery and the slaves built these monoliths, and we we, want, we, we know a lot about, uh, historians know a lot about what Egypt was like. Archaeologists are still digging in the pyramids and finding new things, and we wonder about, what about the slaves, though? What was the average length and timeline or lifespan of a slave? When did they start working? Was it at 15 years of age? Were you expected to live, could you live as old as 25? Because the how, how many hours a day did they work? How many of them were killed in construction? Um, At what age do you get to retire? I don't know that that was ever part of the deal. And and We we know what they ate, but we don't know what it tasted like. At least we didn't until very recently. An archaeologist has recently baked bread using some yeast and some grains discovered that are 4,500 years old. You want to know how they did this? Well, this uh, self-proclaimed gastro-Egyptologist. Now, there's a demand for a, for a vocation. When I grow up, I'm going to be a gastro-Egyptologist. Hmm. I don't know how many of those there are in the world. His name is Seamus Blakely. He teamed up with a microbiologist, and they, they took some of these ancient Egyptian pots, 4,500 years old, that had been used for baking bread, And through a process, they were to extract some of the microbes of the grains and, more importantly, the yeast that was used to bake this bread. They put it in some Petri dishes, began to grow, and after a period of time, they ended up with the grains and the yeast replicated from 4,500 years ago. And if you had all that, what would you do with it? Bake bread, right? And so they make the bread. Turns out it was sourdough bread. And uh, they discovered that, this is what he said, the aroma was amazing and new, that it was, the taste of it, pardon me, was much sweeter and richer than expected, and um, he said the bread was light and airy. It sounds like you're describing something from Kroger, you know what I mean? But there you go, and I want you to hold on to that. Light and airy, an aroma that is different than what we expected, and it was richer than we expected, because If somebody offered me that bread made from microbes that are 4,500 years old, would you try it? I'm up. I'm up for it. I'll try anything once. I may never try it again, particularly if they tell me this is going to be really lighter and sweeter than you expect. That's the period of history that we're going to be looking at today. 4,500 years ago as the pyramids are being built. What we're doing is we're carrying on with our run through scripture, and the goal is to bring everybody within the life of our church, even guests with us today, kind of up to speed on where the Bible starts and how it finishes, and get everybody on the same page. I'm aware that some of you here today, You have studied the Bible for decades, and I want to congratulate you on that. But there are other people who worship with us each week who um, they haven't yet even, I would say, they're looking in at the family of called Christians, and they're wondering, could they step across the line of faith? And they understand that, man, to do that, maybe you need to know something about the Bible. Now, the Bible says you don't need to do that, but I get it. i would like to know, what am I going to be believing if I become a Christian and step over the line? And for you to say, I know nothing about the Bible. And you guys talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. You go, what's that? And what is a testament, let alone an old one and a new one? So what we're doing today is, and throughout the coming weeks is to try to get everybody on the same page and help us all understand a little bit more of the Bible. And so we've got some tools for you in that regard. We'd like you to get involved in a reading plan. It means reading 10 minutes a day, five days a week. Not seven days a week, but five days a week, we, we, we started last week and we did some light reading to kind of get used to the idea, but you could jump in tomorrow morning. We'll be sending out an email tomorrow morning for everybody who might be interested in this. And you get to be part of what we're calling our OTS community, off-the-shelf community. And you'll get a weekly reading plan as well as some bonus material, stuff that we won't get to cover because of time each weekend in the sermons. And so, for example, for those who were part of that community this past week, you saw, one of the things you saw was a video from Brian, and I thought, to help everybody figure out how this is going, we'll show you just a clip of that, what Brian had to say in the OTS community's uh, stuff that came out this week. If you guys will roll the video, please.
1: Well, one of the things I'm always on the lookout for is a space in Decatur where, nothing against Decatur, uh, that at first blush might not seem like we're in Decatur. Uh, And I am in one such spot here as I am at uh, the uh, Park District's Ivy Hill Park, which is just off of Lost Bridge Road. And it is uh, one of my favorite places uh, to spend some time in God's word, getting my Bible off the shelf and opening it up. And one of the cool things about God's word is actually what it has to say about itself. Um, You know, the Bible for you, you might, if you were to say, uh, what category does it fit in? You might just say, it's just a book. You might go as far as to say, well, it's an important book. uh, Or you might go as far as to say that it is the most important book. Uh, well, regardless of where you are at on that continuum, um, there are things within the book that invite you to discover what is most important about the book. Uh, One of my favorite uh, chapters is Psalm chapter one uh, in the scriptures. And the Psalms, they were like songs, um, poems almost uh, about God and really some tough stuff about people really digging around trying to figure out who they were, even wondering where God was when he seemed silent. But in Psalm chapter one, it says that, those who um, meditate or really dwell on God's word, uh, it says that they are like a tree planted by water who bears its fruit in season and out of season. And that's a portrait that I've always appreciated about God's word. This understand that as I say rooted in God's word being, uh, you could say have my roots watered by his word, um, that like this tree up against uh, Lake Decatur here. Uh, It grows, it prospers, uh, just like we are supposed to. And so as you dig into this first week of exploring what God's Word has to say, our reading plan isn't going to just start racing through the Bible. We're actually going to take a few passages just to zoom out and say, okay, wait a second. What does the Bible have to say about itself? And what does it have to do with me? How can it be helpful? And how important is this book? And so we look forward to uh, exploring that here uh, together in the days ahead.
0: All right. So if you're part of the, that OTS community, that's what you saw this past week. There will be another video and more reading plans coming out this week. If, you, if you'd like to join up with that, <clears throat> excuse me, all you have to do is go to the church's website. You can even do it on your phone right now, firstdecadeau.org, and we'd be glad if you do that. I'm not going to be offended if you decide to do that in the middle of worship. Just don't be checking Facebook. Or if you do, just keep it fairly brief and look at pictures of me, okay? (laughs) So let's all sign up. Men, we noticed that there are more women than men signing up. What's with that? Step up, guys, okay? So if you're not into tech stuff, the reading plans are available at the welcome desks. And in case you weren't with us last week, just very briefly what we covered last week to bring you up to speed. So the Bible has this story that we could say is a, an, an arc. It starts in the book of Genesis where all is well. God walks with people every day, and then it's sin and struggle and pain are introduced into the story and into the, the history of humanity. And it reaches this climax with uh, Jesus' life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And then, so that's thousands of years to, from Genesis to Jesus. And then the writings of the Bible drop off and they get to Revelation within 30 years or so of Jesus' ministry. And it ends in Revelation just like it was back in, um, in Genesis where all is well and God's walking with people. As a matter of fact, this is the way it's described in Genesis. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Hey, look, this is something to be mindful of. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There'll be no more death, no more, no more mourning or crying or pain. God's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. So that's where we're headed. We start in Genesis today, where all is well, and then actually the story we're going to look at is where sin has already been come along and life is getting hard. But in the long run, where it goes is back to Genesis creation, where all is well. So this week, the readings will be from Genesis. And to help you understand a little bit of what you're reading today, I'd like to tell you a story that really starts in Genesis chapter 12. We'll get to 37 in just a minute. Because in Genesis chapter 12, there are a few verses that set the stage for the rest of the Bible. It's the, if you will, the opening statements about Jesus' arrival many centuries later. See, Genesis tells us of sin's introduction into humanity's story. It also, if you will, prescribes and foretells, it describes God's plan to deal with that struggle, God's plan to deal with that sin through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so in Genesis 12... There's a story there of a fellow that's commonly known as Abraham. His name is also Abram, but Abraham. And uh, he's a guy who says, I'm going to follow God. I don't know what that exactly means, but I'm going to take a run at that. And God looks at Abram and says, hey, I'm really glad that you're choosing to do what I ask you to do. And because of your willingness to step into that kind of story, he says, Abram, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And Abram's thinking, well, this is kind of weird. But here's what happens. Abram becomes Abraham, becomes the father of the Jewish nation. And consequently, that means Abraham's blood was found in Jesus' veins. And we could say that absolutely all nations were and are blessed by Abraham because one of his descendants is Jesus. This is how it is found in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I'll make you into a great nation, He's going to be, that's going to, he's the father of the Jewish nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. Here it is thousands of years later. What are we doing? We're talking about Abraham. I mean, his name is great. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we know that that's what happened. Jesus comes along. All peoples on earth are blessed. Now, the problem though, is the problem. The problem is that Abram, Abraham, and his family have problems. There's no guarantee here that where we go from Genesis to Revelation and all is well at either end of the timeline, that there's struggle in the middle. That's why Jesus came. No, the, the results of sin are very evident in history, in Abraham's life, and in our world today, and perhaps even in your own life. And you say, man, if we could only get to Revelation where all is well. That struggle was seen in Abraham's family. Here's what we know, Genesis chapter 37. Some years, generations down the road from Abraham, there's a guy by the name of Joseph. Where we pick up the story, he's probably about 15, maybe 17 years old, a young teenager. He's son number 11 of 12 sons. His dad's name is, catch this, Israel. Guess where Israel gets their name today? The nation of Israel gets their name from him. So Joseph is number 11 and there's a problem in the family, not for Joseph, but for the rest of the brothers. Namely, Joseph is his father's favorite son. And you can imagine the struggle that that's gonna bring to the rest of the brothers. Favoritism from, oh, for, of, a char- of a parent for one child over another is not good and Joseph kinda, he knew he was the favorite. And he taunts his brothers, hey, I'm dad's favorite. And he gets special clothes and he gets special treatment and, you know, (laughs) I'm the favorite son and you're not. And um, we're going to read a defining moment that all all families experience. People can make the right choice or the wrong choice, and it will have implications for the years ahead. Read with me Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 12. So we read that Joseph's brothers, verse 12, had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. Their father's name is Israel. And Israel, dad, says to Joseph, hey, Joe, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. I'm going to send it to them. Okay, very well. So Israel says to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And with that, Joseph leaves from the valley of Hebron. And immediately there's a problem probably 10 of the brothers, he's got a little brother who's probably not with in the, in the story at this point. They see him coming from a long distance and they've had it up to here with this kid. You know, by this time, if he's 15 or 17, some of the brothers could easily be 30 or more and they're, they're full on men with their own families and, and they're just, wish that kid had, and, you could put, and, and it comes out this way, verse 18. They saw Joseph in the distance, and before he reached them, they went a little far, but they plotted to kill him. Enough of this kid. Let's just do him in. Dad will never know. Here comes that dreamer they said to each other, let's kill him and throw him under one of these cisterns. There's a like a, a well of, that would normally have water in it. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And then Reuben, Reuben's the oldest brother. So if you've got a 15, 17-year-old brother and you're 10 ahead of him, who knows? You know, He's probably 40. He says, well, let's not take his life. He's trying to talk a little sense to these guys. Maybe they've been drinking too much. We don't know, but they've, it's out, the, the situation's out of control. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben's done this, so he's thinking, after the, boy, after, after the rest of the boys are all cleaned up and thinking, right, I'll get him out and we'll take him home. So, verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him, they threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So He's not drowning, but he's down there. And then as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw what? A caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. So, these are people who are traveling towards Egypt. Now, what's Egypt? Egypt, at this point, is the economic powerhouse of the region, of the whole Near East, of the world for that matter. And Egypt is a consumer nation. They use things. They have all kinds of needs for products. Plus, they're building the pyramids. What do they need to build the pyramids? Labor. So here's what happens. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah, one of the brothers, says to the rest, you know, guys, I've got an idea. If we kill this kid, nothing's good going to come to us. But you know what could come to us? We should, make, we should make a financial decision. We could sell him. And then we're rid of him. And we've got some money in our pockets. He says, what will it gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Not lay our hands on him. After all, when you think about it, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. And when the Midianite merchants came, his brothers pulled Joseph up by the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. And where'd they take him? Egypt 20 shekels of silver on the spot price after the markets closed on Friday about $136 in today's dollars so very very little money I mean 136 bucks is a bunch of money but you're buying a man's life for the rest of his life his labor and with that Joseph is now a slave surely he thought he was gonna die one moment he's doing what dad wants i gonna go visit these guys my brothers Within hours, he's stripped of his clothes by those very brothers. He's thrown down into the bottom of a well, gets hauled up, and he's walking behind some camels with maybe a chain wrapped around his neck or some other part of his body. What was going to be a great day out in the field has now become a disastrous day. And he ends up in Egypt as that nation is building pyramids. Apparently, though, this young kid... He must have had some sort of leadership qualities that others saw. Because even as a slave, whatever situation he went into, he helped organize things. And he could see the administrative way to do things. And so he would rise to the top, if you will, of all those slave groups. And he began, people began to say, well, we'll give this to Joseph. Joseph can manage this. And he got higher and higher up to the point where, once again, some people don't like him. And this strange fate, this strange thing happens. He gets accused of rape falsely, ends up in prison. Once he's in the prison, you know what happens again? He rises up through the ranks and people say, well, Joe, that prisoner over there can manage this and eventually, long story short, he gets freed. And as he gets freed, he has this realization from God. The day is coming when this land called Egypt and the whole Near East is going to face a drought and we could do something about that. And somehow or other, long story short, the word gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh invites him in. What's going on? And with that, you know what Pharaoh does? Pharaoh makes him the equivalent of what we would say the prime minister. Joseph, you're now the prime minister. You're still a slave, but you're responsible to stockpile food for the next few years so that when the drought comes, we'll have enough food to survive. And sure enough, that's what Joseph does as a slave, becomes prime minister, helps the nation get all their resources ready for the coming famine, and the famine hits, hits Egypt, hits all the Near East, and guess what his brothers face? His brothers face the problem that they too are in need of food, and so what do they do? They leave where they're living, come down to Egypt, and they go to the prime minister, and they say, we need some food, can you help us out? Completely unaware that the man standing in front of them, the man behind the desk, if you will, is their brother. It's years later. They'd expected him to be dead by now. After all, they'd sold him into slavery. He was off to build the pyramids. They didn't expect him to live through that. You know what? He could have demanded their executions for their treachery of years ago. What would you do? How would you handle that moment? For matter, as a matter of fact, how do you handle the moments when someone who mistreated you in the past stands in front of you or you see them downtown Decatur, at the mall. You see them in the neighborhood. Can I show you how, how Joseph handled this? His brothers came to him once they realized who he is. They threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. They realized that their lives are dependent upon how he responds to them. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but coming out of all of that, God intended it for good so that something really good would happen to accomplish what is now being done. Namely, because I ended up here, I was able to save many lives. So don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The arrogance has worn off. It's been changed. What was evil has turned out for good. They'd sold him to slavery, but he saved his family during the drought. What could be used for evil, but becomes good—that whole understanding of that's common throughout the Bible. It's the Bible's theme: it's that what what is bad and ugly can be redeemed. We use theological words like redemption, or grace, forgiveness, mercy. It's all there, because the Bible describes life as you and I know it. Many times, struggle, pain. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see lots of that. We're going to see lots of murder and mayhem. And the Bible always responds to all of that with this sort of question when it comes to how to manage this and and what it means when we say that the Bible is full of justice. The Bible asks this question, what does the Lord require of you? It's a rhetorical question with this answer. This is what you're required to do, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So yeah, i got to tell you, the Bible has lots of pain and lots of descriptions of what we live from time to time, but it also calls for justice and mercy. Think about it this way. If the apex of the story truly is Genesis all the way up to Jesus and then off to Revelation, what's the story of Jesus? The story of Jesus is about pain and struggle and death and torture, false accusations, a false execution, and in the midst of that, what happens? Redemption eternal life salvation is offered for all people. See God always chooses to take evil, hold it accountable and then redeem it with divine love. And that's what Joseph is saying. How you meant to harm me, God meant for good. It doesn't eliminate the bad. You've had ugly things happen. It doesn't gloss over the evil. It acknowledges the struggle. What what you meant for evil, there's evil here. It acknowledges the pain, it declares the horror of evil. This evil has been perpetrated against me. However, in the midst of the pain, Joseph is saying, this story is that God changes that pain for good. Trouble, trouble can be redeemed. And it's inherent within the story of Joseph that in a way that we don't see when we read it in English. We read it, and we go, okay, what, what?" maybe I can explain it this way. I want you to take a look at this, this Hebrew word, Mitzrayim. It's a Hebrew word that is, if, you are, if you're ancient Jewish, um, well, they're not even really Jewish at this point, but they're beginning to be a Jewish nation. That's more to come next week. But nonetheless, they speak ancient Hebrew. And if you're, in, if you're an ancient Hebrew and you're saying you're going down to Egypt, you'd say, I'm going to Mitzrayim. That's what it means. However, what's fascinating about it is that word, Mitzrayim, is made up from two, other, from two root words, one of them Hebrew, one of them Aramaic. And both of them mean the same thing, trouble. So if you want to, well, the root words do, okay? So if you want to say trouble in Hebrew, it's mitzah. And so when you say you're going to Egypt, here's what the ancient Hebrews heard. I'm going to Egypt. We say Egypt in English. In ancient Hebrew, they would have said, I'm going to Mitzrayim, which if you were to transliterate that literally, translate that literally, I'm going to double trouble. The place where I'm going, It's called double trouble. The place where I'm going is stress times two. Think about what Joseph learns as he's going and sold into slavery. I'm not only going to slavery, I'm going to double trouble. It's going to be a great ride. That's exactly what happened. Double trouble. He becomes a slave, and there's a famine. Years later, when his brothers go down to Egypt, Go down to Mitzrayim, go down to trouble, trouble, stress, stress, double trouble. What do they experience? Famine. And within a generation or two, they too and all their families are slaves and they're slaves for the next 400 years. We'll figure that out next week. But for today, a word from the scriptures for you. Because I suspect that many here would say, I'm in an ancient Egyptian setting. People look around me and they see things being built like wonderful pyramids. They, they smell the sweet bread. Remember that bread made from ancient yeast? The archaeologists said it was sweeter and uh, more wonderful. These wonderful aromas are more than they expected. And you know that some say, well, look at that household. Look at the people from that house. Man, they lived a sweet life. All is really good for them. The sweet yeast is rising out of that family. And and the aromas, man, it's all around them. All is good. And yet, who are we kidding? You know the truth because you live the truth. I mean, there are days, maybe a couple days last week when it was really, really good. There may be periods of life where it's really, really good, but there are also days where, who are we kidding? You're living in a land called Egypt. Now, I know the Egyptians wouldn't like this, but You're living in a land called Trouble Trouble. You're living in a land called Stress Times Two. You feel like you've been sold into ancient Egypt and there's double stress all around you. You can put it this way. The family's in chaos. The stress at work is beyond measure. For some, health issues. You go, man. The health issues, they only predict trouble followed by more trouble next month and next year. Maybe that's not your setting, but it's one similar to it. And you go, that. what's in front of me is stress times two. It's ancient Egypt. And I got to tell you, friends, (laughs) beloved, hear this very clearly. What the forces of evil mean for trouble, God will use for good. You will come out of the other side. You'll come out of the mess, out of the chaos and the pain. After all, that's why Jesus came. In John ten, we read this that Jesus says, "The thief comes only to steal, kill, and pardon me to steal, kill, and destroy." That's trouble times three: steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, that's Egypt plus another one. I don't want to go there, but sometimes we experience it, right? But he says that's what the thief comes to do. But here's what I've come: the reason I showed up on this on this place called planet Earth, I have come that they, my followers, may have life and may have it to the full. Some of you may know that passage of Scripture where it talks about i are going to have life and they're going to have abundant life. See, friends, among many things, the Bible is a historical and theological record. Over and over, God redeeming evil for good. And when others come to steal, when they come to kill, when they come to destroy, when those moments happen, when they come along, God in Jesus Christ is there. Redeeming the struggle for good today, tomorrow, next month, 2020. All the junk of the past year or the past decade, God's going to redeem that for good. Follow Christ and let's live there. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, for my friends here today, here at the church, those in Lovington, the people watching online, Lord. Lord, um. We, we, we look in the, in the rearview mirror and there are days when life is really sweet and the aromas around us are like, man, that bread has been baking a long time and it's really good. And yet, Father, even in the midst of that, there are also days when it's just not so sweet. And I'd have to acknowledge, Lord, just looking at faces today, knowing some stories. There are some places, God, where it's just, well, it's troubled times too. We thank you for the great days, but in the midst of the bad days, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to have some hope for the future and to remember that what is evil and what has been perpetrated as evil, the stealing, the killing, the destroying, Lord, what has been perpetrated as evil, we pray, God, that you would redeem it in our lives and in our world. Lord, I pray that you would redeem those particularly, Lord, today who have not yet stepped across the line of faith and said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they may not, Lord, they may not know all the implications of that and still trying to figure out Old versus New Testament. All right. But God, for all of us on a wide continuum of faith experience, work within our lives, call us to you, enable us to experience and express your mercy and grace